from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Shaft represents this individualist style and attitude. The ink shut up until his blood turned blue. And this guy comes alive. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. The movie Shaft is about a black private detective who's hired by a Harlem gangster to find the gangster's daughter. But even people who really love the movie don't really remember the plot. What they remember isn't exactly what Shaft does or why he does it, but how he looks as he does it. This tall, strong black man who had such presence walking across the screen. Hey, where the hell are you going, Shaft? To get laid, where the hell are you going? <laughs> that boy's got a lot of mouth on him. It was released in the summer of 1971, and Shaft was an instant hit. At the box office, it took in a dozen times what it cost to make and helped save the MGM studio, which had been struggling. Its commercial success also showed Hollywood that audiences were really hungry for a rough, tough, black leading man. It's a movie starring a black person having the same opportunity to do all the cool things that you saw white people do with music. Suddenly, we had a new Hollywood genre with a new name, Blaxploitation. For the latest installment of our American Icon series, producer Tracy Hunt has the story of Shaft. There's a photo I keep thinking about. It's a black and white photo of this kid named Red Jackson. He's a black teen living in Harlem and a member of a gang. The picture shows him in profile. He stares out a shattered window, a cigarette dangling from his lips. He doesn't look like the cool, tough gangsters you see in movies. He looks young and scared. The photo was taken by Gordon Parks for Life magazine in 1948. Parks was Life's first black staff photographer, and he documented segregation in the South, poverty in New York City, and icons like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. For a long time, he's been one of my favorite photographers, because his photos are rich and nuanced and capture Black life in ways few had done before. But wait, this is the same guy who directed Shaft? Shut your mouth. I'm about Shaft. People love this movie, but I just don't get it. It's so cheesy. I mean, the dialogue. The girl over there with the dark hair and the groovy boobs. The action scenes. And the women are such doormats. I love you. Yeah, I know. Take it easy. Yeah, that was cheesy kind of entertainment. You know what I mean? Like, improbable at that. Stephanie Dunn is a professor at Morehouse College and the author of Bad Bitches and Sassy Supermamas, black power action films. She says before Shaft, Hollywood didn't really make movies that starred black people for black people. This frustrated critics, and soon they were projecting that frustration onto Hollywood's leading black male movie star. Now you listen to me for a minute. There's something I want to tell you about me. Sidney Poitier. 
I know you're colored. What's that? And I, and I think you're beautiful. In a 1967 essay in the New York Times, a black critic named Clifford Mason even calls Poitier a showcase nigger and mocked him for the kinds of roles he took. Sidney, you know, you know, as much as I love him as an actor, there was a sort of a whitewashed version of an African-American male. Sam Pollard has edited dozens of films, including Jungle Fever, Juice, and Half Past Autumn, the life and works of Gordon Parks. We all go back to Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis and the Defiant Ones. In the Defiant Ones, Poitier and Curtis play escaped convicts. In a pivotal scene, they're trying to get away by jumping on a train. Poitier makes it, but Curtis can't keep up. He can't reach Sidney's hand. <laughs> what does Sidney do? Sidney doesn't leave him. Sidney falls off the train with him. So they both get recaptured. Then black audiences always said, Sidney, what what's on your mind? <laughs> you know? Even James Baldwin was troubled by Sidney's sacrifice, writing, When Sidney jumps off the train, the white liberal people were much relieved and joyful. But when black people saw him jump, they yelled, Get back on the train, you fool! And so there's the demand for stories that have African-American people in mind and that are not told from a white perspective starring a black man. In other words, people were ready for a black hero who would have left Tony Curtis in the dust. They were ready for John Shaft. Me? Are you sure it's me? The idea for Shaft started in the 1960s with Alan Rensler, a white editor at Macmillan Publishers. He was active in the civil rights movement and wanted a character that reflected the more militant attitude emerging among black activists like Stokely Carmichael. We have to stop reacting and we have to become aggressive. We can no longer stand up and beg anybody for a victory or a concession. Rinsler contacted the only black literary agent he knew, but the agent suggested another white guy, Ernest Tidyman. His shaft is a cynical and tough loner. And despite the inspiration behind him, he's apolitical. He works with and against a group of black militants, and he works with and against the police. Shaft represents this individualist style and attitude. You know, he's not about the community, right? Before it was even in stores, Tidyman sold the film rights. Now the studio, MGM, needed a director. He really wasn't crazy about shooting the film. David Parks is Gordon Parks' youngest son. Gordon Parks had already directed The Learning Tree about his childhood in Kansas. Now MGM was offering him the chance to do something completely different. What happened was he had to pay the bills. And so he said, well, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money, and he did. But money wasn't his only motivation. In his book, Voices in the Mirror, Parks wrote that by making the film, he would, quote, give black youth their first cinematic hero, comparable to James Cagney or Humphrey Bogart. Well, man, it, it's, it, it, you got to understand, up until that point, there was never a black hero, okay? I mean, he was giving the finger to the white boys. <laughs> that had never happened before. David worked as his dad's assistant on Shaft. He says they were all set to begin filming in New York when MGM called Parks at the last moment, demanding they move the production to an L.A. soundstage. He moved his fist down. He says, I'm not going to give it up. I ain't shooting the film unless we shoot it in New York. I said, go on, Pops, you know. In the early hours of January 3rd, 1971, Gordon Parks and his crew perched on a rooftop in Times Square to shoot the movie's opening sequence. 
The first shot of Midtown looks almost like a grainy documentary film. But then the camera pans down the busy sidewalks and over the movie marquees before fixing on a subway entrance. That's when Richard Roundtree, a former model and high school football star, climbs the last couple of stairs and emerges as Shaft. Even if you've never seen Shaft, you probably already know the music. And you might even recognize this walk. In a beige turtleneck and brown leather coat, handsome, self-assured, and strong. And it's the way that Richard Roundtree is inhabiting the Shaft character from the very beginning. The way he's walking, sort of owning that city. And as essential to the power of this scene as Roundtree's walk is the theme song by Isaac Hayes. Hayes died in 2008, but in the documentary Soul on Cinema about the making of Shaft, you can watch him in the studio with Gordon Parks. And when Shaft pops up out of that subway, that's when they should really come on and carry him all the way through Times Square. And that should be a driving, savage beat, you know, so that we write with him all the time. I have used it as um, cleaning up the house soundtrack. Uh, you know, hey, you, you know, you turn the music up loud, you know, put your phones. Oh, that's me playing, you know, get the house clean real quick like that. Bassist James Alexander of the Barcase played on the soundtrack. Uh, the guitar player, Charles Pitts, who's better known as Skip, he started playing this, this wah-wah line. You know. Skip Pitts, who died in 2012, told the TV show Memphis Sounds that his famous wah-wah riff was created almost by accident. I was tuning up, and I just say, man... Is that to a song? I said, no. I'm just riffing. He said, keep doing it. Don't change anything. Don't change nothing. You just stay right there. So for about an hour and a half, he just played that little groove. He just played that over and over and over again. James Alexander says repetition was a key part of how Isaac Hayes composed. Isaac just started hitting... For a long time, he just hit that same note. For about 30 minutes, I just played, just letting the note ring. And then a while, you know, he, he started trying, like, different variations of it. As the music fades out, the opening sequence ends with Shaft walking into a shoeshine parlor. Thanks, brother. David Park says it was all shot very quickly. My old man was... You know, he was a two-take man. I mean, you know, that was good. Let's do one more for insurance. Gordon Parks wanted to keep the film on schedule and under its limited budget. Can we start with the word budget? And like a lot of B-movies from back then, it showed. That was a determining aspect of the details. The sound mixing is awful. The fake blood looks too fake. And since the production couldn't afford to block off traffic for the movie's Times Square sequence... That shot of Roundtree almost getting hit by a cab? That was real. The acting also wasn't great. Ted Zachary was an assistant director on the film. Gordon was not John Ford. Okay, he, he did not have the knowledge of working with actors. But Zachary says Parks' elegance, his style, the way he carried himself, became part of John Shaft. I think the Shaft character could have been Gordon. John Shaft had a mustache. So did Parks. 
Shaft wore fully tailored coats and neutral colors. Again, so did Parks. And sometimes when people are talking about John Shaft, it sounds a lot like they're talking about Gordon Parks. He had a lot of style. He was a great dresser. You know, he's the elegant guy. As all the chaos is around him, he's floating through it. And that's Gordon, man. <laughs> that's Gordon Parks. Although most of the production went smoothly, sometimes, especially when it was raining, the movie's black stars Richard Roundtree and Moses Gunn were late. There was a scene with the two of them, and they both showed up close to an hour, and I said, what happened to you guys? And Moses Gunn looks at me, he says, you don't know what it's like to be a black man standing on a street corner and all the cabs pass you by. Hey, taxi! What the hell is this? Your white mother... After that, Roundtree and Gunn always got a ride. As much as the realities of 1970s New York City seeped onto the set, Park set about creating a fantasy. A tough, sexy, black private eye in total control of his surroundings. And Parks chose Richard Roundtree to star in that fantasy, even though this was his first film. David Parks knew Richard Roundtree and recommended him to his dad. I mean, I mean, the guy's a good-looking dude, man. Before this, Roundtree had mostly done commercials and print ads as a model. You have reached double R. If no name appears that I recognize, the likelihood of me picking up is slim. Roundtree, who played Shaft in three movies, a TV series, and appeared in the Shaft reboot in 2000, wouldn't talk to us. His manager said after more than 45 years, Roundtree wanted to talk about something else. But at the TCM Classic Film Festival in 2011, Roundtree told the audience that Gordon Parks wanted a certain look. And he said, um, well, we're looking for someone that looks uh, someone like this. And he points to a ad that I had done a year ago. I said, that's me. <laughs> and he looked at the ad, he looked at me and said, <laughs> the fantasy Parks created with Roundtree is a very macho, male-centered one. Baby, are you all right? The woman only exists to show how cool and sexy Shaft is. I got to feeling like a machine. That's no way to feel. I mean, his name is John Shaft. Come here, baby. But still, Parks' background in photojournalism meant that his version of 1970s Harlem would still be authentic. It was the Harlem I knew. You know, it was the Harlem I grew up with. The guys who looked kind of slick, the guys who were hustlers, the guys who were con artists, you know, the police who had a presence, all that stuff I saw. On July 2nd, 1971, moviegoers finally got to see this new kind of hero. We knew we had a winner when the opening sequence, him coming out of the subway, and the music and Isaac clicked in. There were people up there standing up, clapping and cheering about that. Ted Zachary, the assistant director, couldn't go to the film's premiere and saw the movie a few weeks after it opened. And behind us, there were four black kids who were probably somewhere between 10 and 15. Uh, We saw like a 7 o'clock show. These kids were there since noon. And one would say, watch what he does here. Look at this. Look, watch, watch, watch what he does to this guy here. They were so enamored with this guy, he instantly became a hero. 
it's kind of funny, like when you look back at the movie now, because it isn't like Shaft is he's even a very good te- detective. Before he created the Luke Cage series for Netflix, Cheo Hadari Coker was a music journalist, and he saw Shaft's influence on hip hop artists like Rakim, LL Cool J, and Big Daddy Kane. Well, Big Daddy Kane is is Shaft. <laughs> you know, he look, kind of looked like Richard Roundtree with a hot top fade. Dark skin, mustache, handsome, and I always thought that if Shaft could rhyme, he'd sound like B. Daddy Kane. But I'm like Shaft, so cool that you feel a draft, or like Superfly, I live in dual die. I give your girl a kiss of death just like... One, two, one, two, you got the RZA right here from the almighty Wu-Tang Clan, I'm in the building. We're talking about the great movie and soundtrack to Shaft. Uh, they came actually to one of our shows, this is After Party. That's right, at about four o'clock in the morning... The RZA was happy to talk about Shaft. For us in America as black men and women, a lot of our films and movies has depicted us in always a submissive or inferior position and never being a full man. And every man is, not wants to be, every man is a man. And characters like that were a glimpse for young black Americans on how to be a cool man. You know what I mean? And, and I think his coolness rubbed off on me. Chayo Hadari Coker says he wanted to capture that attitude for Luke Cage, a Marvel superhero with skin so strong that bullets and knives bounce off of him. And to a certain extent, Luke Cage is bulletproof shaft. Take him out. I'm about sick of always having to buy new clothes. But Luke Cage could also be called Sensitive Shaft. Luke Cage starts out a loner, but he cares about his community. And he wants the women he sleeps with to call the next day. One of my favorite parts of Shaft is a montage where he goes around Harlem, knocking on doors, trying to find an old friend. Hey, man. Hey, man. What's going on? Seen, man? You've seen these various iconic shots of Harlem as he walks around. When we did something similar in Luke Cage, we just have this various scenes of him talking to people and the music and everything else. I mean, we, we lifted that directly from Shaft. That moment of a black man walking with rhythm is one of the staples of the black exploitation hero. 1971 also saw the release of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, directed by Melvin Van Peebles. Both films were a success at the box office, and they helped bring about a new era in filmmaking. Black exploitation. This is the end of your rotten life, you dope pusher! At first, men dominated this new genre, but it soon made stars of women like Tamara Dobson and Pam Greer. It was easy for him because he really didn't believe it was coming. But it ain't gonna be easy for you because you better believe it's coming. But as more and more of these movies were produced to meet demand, the quality rapidly declined, and black exploitation became a bit of a joke. Uh, black Film Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, the Black Film Hall. Hall of Fame. So it's one of the least. Though it still has many fans. Across the 110th Street, The Mac, Hitman. My co-producer Daniel and I wanted to know how much Harlem still remembered Shaft. So we went up to 125th Street, and were quickly directed to this store located right beside the Apollo. Black, classic, Movies. That is the name of the store. So you walk up the stairs and into this room, and you see Aika Peter at the center. She's completely surrounded, wall to wall, floor to ceiling, with DVDs. 
And more than 45 years after its release, Shaft is still a bestseller. Every week we sell, you know, right. four copies or sometimes five copies, sometimes two copies, but it's something that every week we sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel and I were there for a few minutes talking to Peter when this guy walked in. That music still sells to this day. That, sh- that Isaac Hayes still sells. I knew Isaac Hayes personally. Really? How come? A friend of mine was his limousine driver. Wow. When Isaac Hayes used to come out, he liked orange juice and the New York Times in the backseat of the car, the limousine. He told us to call him Brother Shabazz and says that he saw Shaft when it first came out. I might have been to, like maybe about 13, 14, something like that, 12. Oh, okay. But it was good because you went sneak in the theater or you sneak in the back. Because Harlem had a lot, all these things with theaters around, Roosevelt Theater down the block. Do you remember how the audience reacted when they were watching it? You could feel that excitement. Well, that's Harlem, 125th Street, Apollo. You know, all the areas that you could identify with. Say, look at the beauty. Look at Harlem, man. Oh, man, they're going to And then sometimes you might look for yourself. You might have thought they might have caught you in the scene <laughs> walking across. And there it is. The thrill of watching a movie and believing for the first time that you might just see yourself. Or something that you recognize as your own. Shaft still isn't the movie for me. I don't give a damn what he likes. What the hell are you pumping me for, huh? But as I see more and more images of black men and women shot and brutalized by police, watching this black man sit in a police station totally relaxed, disrespecting white cops, is for me, a black woman, very gratifying. Don't get wise with me, Shaft. There's a very simple way for me to go. I put your goddamn ass in. I'll sue your goddamn ass for false arrest. Do you expect me to... Gordon Parks died in 2006 at the age of 93. He did a lot in his life. He wrote books, composed music, and took some of the most iconic photos of the 20th century. And he also directed Shaft. He may have preferred some of the other work he did, but he was proud of the movie's success, even directing its sequel in 1972. As he told Roger Ebert that year, we need movies about the history of our people, but we need heroic fantasies about our people too. We all need a little James Bond now and then. Tracy Hunt co-produced that piece with Daniel Guimet. You can see some clips from Shaft and listen to any of our dozens of other American icons at studio360.org. Coming up, when comedy doesn't care about your precious little feelings. We're not worrying about a lot of the things I guess a lot of other sitcoms, certainly on networks, do worry about, which is all of that hugging and learning. David Mandel, the writer now in charge of Veep and a veteran of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld, tells me his approach to comedy and gives a crash course in writer's room lingo. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. I love learning the jargon peculiar to various trades and professions. People in creative jobs use jargon as much as anybody, and I'm learning more of it all the time thanks to this new series of conversations we're having called Terms of Art. This week, how to talk like a TV writer. And to explain the nomenclature of writer's rooms for TV comedies, I called up my friend Dave Mandel. Uh, they're, they're wiring me up or putting Hi. headphones on me. It's how good. are you? Good. Hey, how you doing? Good. 
Dave started out at Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, and since then, he's written for essentially the defining comedy show of each decade. Seinfeld, then Curb Your Enthusiasm, and now Veep, where he is the head writer and the showrunner. Most comedy shows hatch and incubate their jokes in what they call writer's rooms, but Dave hates those, and he refuses to have a room on any of the shows he runs. I asked him to define exactly what a writer's room is. Basically, there is a room, a large conference room with, you know, table and food and drinks. Um, and the writers sit around this room. And in on most comedy shows, because it is different for drama, they pitch out ideas uh, for different episodes and then start working on the episode in the room and really lay it out sort of beat by beat, comedy beat by beat of like what could happen and this guy can say this and this guy can say this and this guy can say that. It's all written down by a writer's assistant and then usually it is then handed off to whoever – whatever writer's it's their turn to then go off and write the episode. Right. And that has nothing to do with contribution to what right. was going on in that room right. and whatnot. I, I do think there is value in the punch-up. I do think you can go through with a bunch of right. really funny people and make lines funnier and people who don't have anything to do with the script can read a script and go, this isn't working. And that's all really valuable. So it's not like I'm saying that a room can't exist. Right. What my problem is is when it's sort of used for the whole thing. You can, that, you, can, that's where, yes. you can improve by committee, but you can't create by committee. I, I think creation is a very individual thing. I want to play a, a scene that was written by a writer's room about a writer's room. It's a clip from 30 Rock parodying the writing process for Liz Lemon slash Tina Fey's uh, sketch comedy show. Let's uh, get into two first commercial parody. We were trying to think of a funnier... Serial name. Uh, the favorite options so far include Honey Bunches of Sadness, Oat Bung, and Swasticos. Uh, fruit Lupus. Nah. Dangleberries. Fart Nuggets. <laughs> That's really great. Um, frosted Mini Guns. Lucky Bastards. If you don't mind, I, I think we all really laughed at Fart Nuggets, so can we just move on, mm-hmm. please? That is uh, Tina Fey at the beginning and Alec Baldwin at the end um, making me laugh hearing it again. Is that what it's like in a writer's room? Yes and no. I mean, that, all of those names are so random that you can't imagine that what the commercial parody is if you actually <laughs> yes. changed it to any one of those names as opposed to say – we're doing a serial that's about uh, – it's a serial for people that – I'm making this up now uh, – that just broke up with their girlfriend and we're calling it Honey Bunches of Sadness. Is there a funnier name for that? But then, yes, one would start to riff on, you know, whatever it was, Sadios and Frosted Tissues and I don't know. Those, those are all terrible. But that's very much like what it is and you very quickly get to fart jokes, urine jokes. Bunches of sadness, swastikos. Honey bunches of sadness, fart nuggets. Honey bunches of sadness. That's really great. Our next term of art is one of your own invention. What is a joke-like substance? In those large rooms, things just start to seem funny that are not funny. I don't know how else to explain it. It's like you get the room to laugh, and it goes in the script, and it's not really a joke. 
but it has the rhythms of a joke. It's you know, it sounds like a joke, like you know, ba 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 all night. You know, yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. kind of. Yeah. It, it's it sounds like a joke. It sort of smells a little bit like a joke. It's like joke like substance, but it's not a joke, and it gets exposed eventually. But often that's not till it's in front of an audience, which obviously is a horrible place for it to get exposed. So you're dubious about writers' rooms and the kinds of comedy they uh, generate. But if there is one element of Veep that I kind of imagine a bunch of writers laughing and slapping each other on the back as they come up with, it's those elaborately uh, creative insults that almost every character uses. We've got a montage of a few of them from last season. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Put that world's tallest pile of garbage on the phone right now. Get the hunchback of Notre Hampshire down to the floor. You are a seven foot seven goonie looking Lithuanian. Shave Sasquatch. Senile old piss sponge. Sentient anima. You're about as toxic as a urinal cake in Chernobyl, and I am offering you a job. Does that work? If you don't look like someone melted Play-Doh all over a flagpole, it does. Wow. Uh, that's a collection of insults from the last season of Veep. So did did the show begin doing that or was that just something that became, oh, this is like our our kind of catchphrase that's different each time? It was very much there from the beginning. Um, definitely as it's come down now, you know, as we're in sort of season six, there's definitely that sort of set thing that's definitely a touch sitcom-y, but we kind of look the other way yeah. because we enjoy it so much. And ultimately, we're not worrying about a lot of the things I guess a lot of other sitcoms, certainly on networks, do worry about, which is all of that hugging and learning. You know, that's all the old Seinfeld stuff. No hugging, no learning. It's about nothing. But what it's really ultimately about is just what's, how does this, how do you make this show the funniest show possible? You know what I mean? That's ultimately what it is, is what's the best joke possible and who cares who is offended or not offended or whatnot? Put that world's tallest pile of garbage. Put Put that world's tallest There's another term of art uh, that you use uh, on Veep. Uh, What is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, zhuzhing? Uh, kind of more zhuzhing, yes, zhuzhing? exactly. Okay. I think I think so, yeah. Um, I've actually, the only other place I had ever heard zhuzhing was, oddly enough, Project Runway. Uh, the, the main guy, the, the, the advisor, Tim, whatever Gunn. his name, Tim Gunn, yes. Um, he used to say, zhuzh it a little bit, although I don't quite remember how he meant it. But for us, what it means is, let's say we have a scene where it's two characters are talking. So things sometimes just start to get a little rote, a little line, 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 line. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. That's great. That's not how we talk. Even right here uh, on, you know, you and I talking on this interview, we're trying to stay out of each other's way, but occasionally we're talking over each other. And that's what zhuzhing is. That's what messing it up is. And it's a real hallmark of Veep that we're not afraid to let people talk over each other, sometimes even important information. And also to say to the actors, I know it says hello. And then the next line is, how are you? And then I'm fine. Don't worry about the lines. Get the idea of the line. And I know these are bad examples because I keep saying, well, hi, how to, are you? No, to that point, not only will I interrupt you, I, uh-huh. I will also play a clip from uh, Veep, a great scene where, where Selena Meyer, as the president and her team, have just learned that uh, she might have the opportunity to free Tibet, which yes. she'll then have uh, a legacy. Uh, let's listen to that clip. 
I'm freeing Tibet. No, oh, no, not whoa. free. Well, it would likely be one country, two systems, similar to Hong Kong. That's it. Okay. That is like some man on the moon legacy. Yeah, My yeah, God, yeah, yeah. Selena Meyer, the woman who freed Tibet. <laughs> not, no, really, not free. Well, what about the factories in Ohio? The Jonah's ahead North in Carolina. all the latest polls. Those factories, man, I'm free in Tibet. <laughs> really, not free. Oh, it is, uh, it is, of course, tragic for the unemployed workers of Ohio and, and North Carolina. Oh, well, they should have tried going to college. Yeah. Worry about your own unemployment in Finland. <laughs> oh my we don't God. have unemployment I'm in Finland. I'm gonna win a Nobel f- Peace Prize, you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, are you all it's right? Okay. Uh, a perfect example. If you had actually took those lines and saw them on paper, that's a six-page scene. But there's so much kind of going on on top of each other, over each other, and even people who aren't um, don't have lines. They're encouraged to. This is good news. Jump in there. Be happy. You know. And we'll, we're constantly covering things. We shoot. Um, we shoot with three cameras so that if things do get messy and things do get covered up and whatnot, you have multiple angles on it to cover it. Now, obviously, we want to make sure sometimes in there I'll say like, I want to make sure I hear that Jonah line. So let just, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, when Kevin, when you're speaking, just give him a little room to shove that in. And that's where our actors are so good, where they can build in that mini pause. So again, it's still layered, but I'm hearing the one or two key words I need to know I need to hear for plot and whatnot. So as you're zhuzhing, they, they can also pause to allow for the, the necessary... Zhuzhing with a little bit of a cheat of... Che- some cheating of the zhuzhing. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. I'm freeing Tibet. No. I'm freeing Tibet. No. I'm freeing Tibet. I'm freeing Tibet. I'm freeing Tibet. No. The next uh, term isn't familiar to me as a writing term. Uh, what is... Thanksgiving dinner? Thanksgiving dinner is, a, a, I guess, a relatively new term in writers' rooms. And what it is is it's a writer who's been very quiet, not pitchy. I, I have a smile on my face as I'm telling you this. I can um, hear it. A writer who's been saying nothing in the room, not pitching jokes, I guess not pitching even stories. And then all of a sudden, you get to a moment where you're writing about something like the Thanksgiving dinner, and you're writing the direction, and you're telling the writer's assistant to write down a big table with a turkey and all the the fixings or something. And now all of a sudden, this guy comes alive, and he's telling the writer's assistant, "Uh, cranberries, uh, (laughs) stuffing, uh, there's a a pumpkin pie sitting Uh on the leg of the window and he's basically taking what nobody cares about except <laughs> yeah. maybe the production designer adding about you know 11 pages of direction um, just to just nonsense you know and and that's that's Thanksgiving dinner that's great and, and when you were when you were like a kid at, at new to SNL mm-hmm. did you ever do that kind of thing or were you too good and I'm too- sure I definitely added into directions that didn't need directing you know that didn't need it when I was at SNL I was just you know manic to contribute. So I contributed everywhere, including Thanksgiving dinner descriptions. But I like to think I was adding other jokes as well. Right. Um, Finally, laying pipe. Uh, What does that mean in television? 
uh, laying pipe is sort of laying down sort of the the narrative stuff that you need in a script that's going to either come back later. You know, it's like I've got to make sure early on that you know this guy has a sister who he is estranged from right. so that that sister can come back at the end of act one. That's laying pipe. I'm going to figure out a way in my scene where I'm talking to the grocer. The grocer is going to say, do you want raspberry jam? And he'll go, oh, no, you know, my sister who I never talked to is allergic to that. Uh, and so it seems like a very natural thing, but I'm laying the pipe so that later on um, she can show up and you know she exists and the plumbing all works. And and given that half hours uh, comedies are so short and really only 22, 23 minutes, uh, it, it seems like it's it must be particularly hard to do that because you just don't have the time that you do it in a in a in a movie in a two hour movie or let alone no a novel. It's, it's definitely very hard to lay these things in if you do it too much then everyone's sitting there going when's that sister showing up by the way that is when other room sitcom people might hang a lantern on it which is trying to make a point of how odd it is that you're telling me about your sister so it doesn't seem like you're laying pipe, if that makes sense. I get it. So that a character might go, oh, wow, you never told me about that sister. We've known each other for 30 years or something like that. So it makes it seem okay that they didn't know or, boy, that's odd. What an odd moment. So the, hang- pointed- the hanging of the lantern disguises the badly laid pipe. Or the something. poorly laid <laughs> pipe. <laughs> Ideally, well-laid pipe would yeah. be hidden sort of underground, but occasionally Occasionally, if the pipe is showing, you would hang a lantern on it right. to make it seem like it wasn't such a bad pipe-laying job. Got it. <laughs> David, thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. And I learned things. Oh, thank you. David Mandel is executive producer and head writer of Veep, of which season six begins on HBO on April 16th. So what interesting terms of art do you use in your profession as a mime? say, or a chainsaw sculptor. Let us know at studio360.org. Dave, thank you so, 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 so much. Oh, I hope that was okay. That was, uh, was fascinating. To, I never, no one's ever asked me about any of that. Well, not, now, so, now, it's, oh. now you're immortalized. Let's say your brother-in-law has heard all the hoopla about podcasts, but doesn't know how or where to listen. All this month, we at Studio 360 are asking you to find somebody like your brother-in-law who's in the dark about podcasts and show them the light. And while you're at it, tell the world about your latest favorite podcast on social media. When you do, use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for evangelizing. Coming up... The typical short story might run 16 pages. Here's one that's 16 words. He was born with a silver knife in his mouth, and he was its first victim. Osama Alomar talks about his really short fiction and the long road he's traveled from Syria to America. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. If you've hailed a taxi in Chicago anytime in the last decade, you might have been picked up by this guy. I'm free, I'm free. Oh, you're free? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go to... 
That is Osama Alomar. He is a Syrian immigrant. How much? Maybe 30, 35, maybe less, maybe more. It depends on traffic, too, if there was traffic. The more traffic, the more time for conversation. And sometimes the conversation got around to the fact that Osama is a man of letters. I showed them my book. I have two copies or three copies of my book, Full Blood Arabian. They read it. Some of them ask me, is this for sale? I say, yes. <laughs> it's for you. Uh, so far, I have sold uh, over uh, 80, 85 copies from my camp. In fact, Osama Alamar is an award-winning author who is well-known in the Arabic world. His short stories have appeared in the Literary Review and in The New Yorker, among other places. He's got a brand new book coming out in the United States. It's called The Teeth of the Comb and Other Stories. And he is here with me now, Osama Alamar. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful invitation. So when most people, when we think about short stories, we think of stories that take mm, half an hour to read, something like that, maybe an hour in some cases. I think your longest in this book is three pages, right? Exactly. (laughs) And and some of them, I mean, when people unavoidably say, well, it's like a tweet, Uh, right? Right. (laughs) So people have a sense of some of the very short ones. Could you read one for us? Sure. The Knife. He was born with a silver knife in his mouth, and he was its first victim. That was the knife. So have you always written in this extremely short form? Mostly. I love this style. I don't like to write many pages, many pages for nothing. I just want want to tell you my idea, my word, just like bullet. There is... I understand, in Arab literature, a tradition of these very short stories. Exactly. There's a lot of uh, writers who wrote this style from ancient Arabic literature over uh, 700 or 800 years ago. But recently it became just like phenomenon, especially in Syria, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Iraq, in the last 20 years. It was revived. Exactly. Maybe because... People don't have time to spend a lot of time reading big books, novels for hundreds of pages. They want to read something very fast and get the idea and enjoy it, and that's it. May we hear another story? Sure. The stake. The great writer was forced to sit on his own pen as punishment for his sharp tongue. The ink shot up into him until his blood turned blue. He became prominent and slowly came to his senses. That is The Stake, read by its author, Osama Alamar. Osama, do you remember uh, the genesis of that story? What inspired it? Uh, From the dictatorship in Syria. We have a really brutal regime in Syria. Maybe now much worse than before. But when I wrote this story, I was inspired by the Syrian regime about censorship. We have very tough and strict censorship in Syria. Right. 
And when you, I mean, you left in 2007? October 2008. Right. And which, of course, is before the Arab Spring, before uh, the Civil War. When you, because of writing stories like The Great Writer and other uh, stories that, you know, they don't name names, they don't talk about Assad, but the, but they're political. Was Was that a problem for you? Were you persecuted? I was lucky, no, no. You were able to write and publish and read and... Yes, because most of my books, uh, I was published of uh, most of my books in Lebanon. Aha. Uh-huh. So there's no censorship in Lebanon. Right. And at the same time, I think I was lucky. So I, I never faced any kind of uh, persecution like, like other writers. They were jailed or tortured. Many writers were tortured until now. And back when you were writing and, and other writers were being tortured, that didn't make you worry about, like, am I next? To be honest with you, with you yes, I was worried. But at the same time, I couldn't tie my tongue. Right. And, and then you left in 2008, uh, again, before life became a nightmare in, in Syria. Exactly. Why, why did you leave? I left Syria for two reasons. The first, I wanted to establish my name as a writer in the U.S. And the second one, to establish my freedom. Freedom is a very important issue for me and I think for many people. So you lived until uh, nine years ago under these dictators. Dictatorship, And authoritarians. Yes. yes. Does Trump remind you of them in any way? Uh, yes, somehow, yes. But uh, maybe another kind of dictatorship because the U.S. still state of law despite everything, and there's great constitution. So there's big difference between Syria and the U.S. Are you, are you a green card holder or a citizen? What are you? Now I'm citizen. Of the U.S.? One year ago, yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, nick of time. <laughs> now that you've been here and are writing here, I mean, I, I suppose it's impossible not to be identified by others, certainly, as a Syrian writer. Do you think of yourself more as a Syrian writer being in the United States? Uh, now I'm Syrian-American writer. Uh-huh. This is my new country, and I decided from the beginning to uh, to be American writer, Syrian-American writer. Uh-huh. That's why I decided to, to translate my work into English and to, to establish my name in English language. Right. Now that you, you're, this is your second book that's been translated into English, uh, are you interested in writing in English? Uh, not yet. I'm yeah. still writing uh, in Arabic. Right. But I'm practicing. I'm, yeah. Every day I'm practicing. Yeah. And, and you work with your translator, uh, C.J. Collins. How did the two of you get together? You've been working together for a while. I first met uh, C.J. Collins in Damascus on 2006. And then we be, uh, became very close friends. And now he is my best friend. He's an American. He's American. Uh-huh. My best friend, he's American. And uh, He's now my translator, but first of all, he's my best friend. Uh-huh. So there's a great harmony between me and him. Uh-huh. And he, he, was, he was in uh, Damascus on a Fulbright? Yes. Yeah. I, I have had books translated, and, and sometimes, you know, there's some email exchanges with translators about particular words, but basically, you don't work together. Uh, you work really closely with CJ, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, like, talk about how you guys work together on this book of stories. Uh, it looks very funny story. We did most of our translations in my cab. So he would come out to Chicago and ride around with exactly. you? Exactly. In the front seat with all dictionaries, books. So my passengers were looking at us and asking, what are you doing, guys? We are translating. Translating what? Stories. What? <laughs> 
Did they believe you? I guess they probably did. Yes, yeah. yes, because they noticed the books, dictionaries. Or... And by the way, you, you've lived in Chicago for eight years? Eight, eight years. And now you're newly in Pittsburgh because you've been invited to be a writer in residence. Exactly. Wow. And who, who's the, who, the sponsor or the underwriter is who? Uh, the founder is uh, Henry Reese uh-huh. with his wife, Diane Samuels. Well, they're just individuals who are doing this? Yes. How great. Which means you, you're not going to be driving a taxi for the next year? No way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I don't want to go back to driving. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. And uh, have you written about that? No, never. I don't know why. Really? I really don't know why. I couldn't get any kind of inspiration from my cab. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, maybe now that you'll, you're done with it, you'll get some distance and it will become material. Yes, and maybe because it was a hardship for me. Yeah. Did it feel like a hardship? Yes. For me, yes. Because it was boring and you weren't writing? Or? It was so boring and it, it was not me. I, I felt as if I lost my soul. Hmm. Now I'm going back to my soul, to myself. Yeah. So d- during this year in Pittsburgh, you have the, the wherewithal, you'll just be able to write all the time? Exactly. What a dream. I'm so happy and uh, I'm so lucky. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, congratulations on this book and uh, hope to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. Osama Alomar's book, The Teeth of the Comb and Other Stories, is coming out in late April. Thanks to Ashley Cleek for recording Alomar in his Chicago taxi. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our interim executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Senior editor... Andrew Adam Newman. And our technical director... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our intern... Max Gibson. Meanwhile, I'm Kurt Anderson. He like orange juice in the New York Times in the backseat of the limousine. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Great ideas brought to life. And by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, how does a mere mortal fill out the costume for the Man of Steel? They put Christopher in various sizes of codpiece, and I used to ping on them because they were made of steel. And and then he'd scream, stop it, Kidder, for God's sake, Kidder, stop it. A former Lois Lane remembers her days and nights with Superman next time on Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.